Well, good morning. Would you join us as we begin our time of worship singing, Oh, Come All Ye Faithful. Stand with us as we sing. Psalm 95, verse 1, it says, O come, let us sing for the joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with Psalms 4. The Lord is a great God and a great king. 
above all gods. And that's what we're here to celebrate this morning. We're glad for this opportunity and trust that our hearts will be encouraged in what the Lord is doing and uh, encouraging one another and celebrating uh, the goodness of our God, the great God uh, that he is as we come here this morning. Uh, there are a few that we're praying for as we're reminded of that opportunity to pray one for another and just reminding ourselves of this time of the year and of the challenges and the difficulties that sometimes come with us as we celebrate, but also commemorate and to remember. And uh, so many in our church that uh, have loved ones who have gone on or uh, the challenges of health and things of this nature. So that's something that we can continue to lift up one another in prayer and uh, specifically thinking about the, the Smith family and uh, remembering Bobby even today as he uh, celebrated Linda's life yesterday with his family and uh, just remembering some of these uh, that are also in a very similar situation. Uh, just many there that's in the bulletin and I hope that uh, you'll take a moment and reflect upon those names and make sure that you're acquainted with them so that you can truly pray for them and uh, remember them. But always it's a joy to be able to gather here with you, our friends and uh, fellow believers in Christ and to celebrate our great God. And so let's open our time here in prayer and let's remember to rejoice in the season that God has given to us. Father, we're grateful for this morning. Lord, we're just grateful for the ways that you give and you are generous and that your kindness comes to us as a people that are undeserving, but yet how truly needy we are. And Lord, we stand before you today as we come into this place as the people that are chosen by your name. We celebrate what Jesus Christ has done for us. And Lord, we rejoice in that salvation, that forgiveness, that restored relationship with the God of the universe and Lord, I pray that every heart here would truly cherish and reflect upon the goodness that you have given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there is one here that's in our company that doesn't have that assurance, that doesn't know that without a shadow of a doubt, Lord, I pray that you would do something in their heart to remind them, to reveal to them, to show them how truly you love them. And Lord, I pray that you draw us to yourself. Bless our time. And we do pray for those who are struggling we pray for those who are discouraged today. I pray for those who come even into this place with hearts that are heavy, uh, decisions that are weighing, uh, things that are upon them and oppressing them. And Lord, I pray that you'd give victory. I pray that you'd give assurance. And I pray that you'd just give us a real reason to walk out of here ready to behold the goodness of our God in the faces and the opportunities and the days ahead. And Lord, I praise you for the God that you are and we rejoice in you. Speak to our hearts this morning, we pray, and may we truly cherish this opportunity to express our love for you. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you, Pastor. Would you stand with us as we continue worshiping this morning?
In the darkness we were waiting Without hope, without light Till from heaven you came run There was mercy in your eyes To fulfill the law and prophets To a virgin came the word From a throne of endless glory
God, thank you for this time that we can come and, and lift your name high. I pray that those songs this morning are a sweet aroma to you. Lord, thank you for this time of year that we um, recognize or symbolizes your time of birth. I thank you for Jesus, his life and ministry here on earth and his death, as we just sang about the death and the resurrection, the stone rolled away. He's alive and we can worship him with confidence. Jesus is alive. Thank you for the promises you've given us in your word. I pray for Jonathan as he comes and speaks this morning that you would just empower him, Lord. Speak through the word. Speak through him. We thank you for what you're going to do in our lives, Lord. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we're thinking about uh, today, and uh, just a minute, Jonathan is going to come. Jonathan Kleiss is uh, our, I guess you'd say, our newest missionary uh, to the Grace uh, fold here, and uh, we're excited and just a little bit to hear from him. I, de- I did want to mention as well that uh, today and uh, this uh, kind of t- mentioned today that next Sunday, uh, the Prairies as well as the Kleises, that'll be their last Sunday with us. And uh, there's some information there about the Prairies and some time that we want to have with them, uh, potluck meal and some other things a bit more still at th- one o'clock. And uh, we're using the facilities there. And uh, so there's more details in the bulletin about that. But uh, make sure that you're aware of that. And uh, excited for them. And we're excited for the Kleises, uh, the, the ways that God is working in both of these individual lives and families. And it's neat to watch what God is up to. It's good to have Jonathan Noella. We've sure enjoyed the opportunity over the course of a year. I mean, by the time we started talking and then them being with us came uh, in this last uh, April, spent April and May, and then Lord took them away to do some travels and other things and brought them back here in October and for the last few months and just to be able to engage in their hearts and to interact with them. And I hope that you have found that opportunity. And by the way, great looking new prayer card. And uh, this is out there on the table. I just hope that as we hear from him this morning, as he challenges from God's word, that we can appreciate what God's been doing in this family and that we have an opportunity to be in prayer for them, to be engaging with them and to interacting with them. But as he opens his word, I hope that we will allow the Holy Spirit to interact with our hearts and that we will engage with the truth of his word. It's more important to what God has to say than what Jonathan necessarily has to say, but we're grateful for the vehicles that God uses to allow us to be able to take and receive his word. And so Jonathan, come share with us this morning what God is is upon your heart, and uh, we're excited that uh, we get to hear you today. Amen. Well, it is a special privilege for me this morning to be able not only to share with you the word, but uh, in particular, one of my favorite stories from the Bible. Uh, It's found in 1 Kings chapter 13. So I'd invite you to turn there with me, 1 Kings chapter 13. It's a bit of a lengthy story, but we need to read the whole thing. And uh, we've got a lot to cover, so I'm just gonna jump right in. 1 Kings chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 1. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. 
Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he had stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place, for so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water, nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words that he had spoken to the king, and their father said to them, which way did he go? And his son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go in with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And as he sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. 
and he laid the body in his own grave. And they mourned over him saying, alas, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, when I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. Well, there you go. Uh, now, uh, maybe some of you might be asking yourselves, you know, you know this is kind of, a, seems like a strange story uh, for you to say that this is one of your favorites in the Bible. And, and I understand that. Um, part of the, 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 the sort of the intrigue of this passage was precisely because when I started reading and thinking about it, I had no idea what it was uh, uh, teaching or, or communicating. And so, but as I began to think through and meditate more on it, and, and, and you know, the Lord was gracious, I think, to help me to understand some things about it. And I'd like to share them with you. And hopefully after spending a bit of time meditating together on this, you'll see why this is actually one of my, my favorite stories in the Bible. It's important to uh, set the context, though. So where are we? What's going on in the history of Israel at this particular moment? Well, in the previous chapter, the kingdom consisting of the 12 tribes of Israel that after the catastrophic failure of the kingship of Saul, David had united together to form a single kingdom. This kingdom has split into the kingdom of the north of Israel under King Jeroboam and the kingdom of the south, the kingdom of Judah under Rehoboam, who is the son of Solomon, the grandson of David. And the reason that this has occurred is because it's due to Solomon's infidelities in his later years. Now God had, been, had, had made a promise to David that unlike Saul, that he would not strip the kingdom away from his house. That David would always have a descendant to reign and that his throne would be, in a th- would be an everlasting throne. And so, so Solomon is, uh, becomes, becomes unfaithful in the latter part of his life and, and so God uh, 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 brings judgment against the house of David and his son, and Solomon's son Rehoboam, loses the majority of the kingdom. However, he doesn't lose the whole kingdom because God is, of course, faithful here to his promise. And King Jeroboam, though, who's in the north, uh, ruling over uh, ten tribes of Israel, he's, he's, he's a fairly shrewd uh, politician. He's thinking to himself, you know, I, I, I've successfully waged this campaign against, against Rehoboam in the south. However, I'm a little bit concerned because uh, the temple is in Jerusalem, which is located in the territory of Judah. And I'm concerned that if people continue to go from my kingdom down, back down to Judah, uh, they're going to retain allegiances to Rehoboam and to the house of David. And so to, to shore up his own power, to consolidate his own power, what Jeroboam does is he, uh, he builds two centers of worship, two altars in his own territory, one in the far north in the territory of the tribe of, of Dan, and then one further south near the border of Judah at 
a city called Bethel, which ironically is, uh, means the house of God. Of course, this was in direct violation with God's command who had said that to, to make sacrifices, you need to go to the temple in Jerusalem. And so it is for this reason, for this violation of God's command that God sends a man who remains anonymous in the story, but he sends a man from Judah to go and confront Jeroboam and to speak to him a message of judgment precisely in the moment when Jeroboam is there assisting at sacrifices taking place in Bethel at the altar. And so this is where we are then when we come to the beginning of chapter 13 and the ensuing drama. Now, um, I'm going to make a couple of observations of why I think perhaps this story could be a little bit difficult for us. Uh, The first reason is this. This story uh, resists and defies any attempts to turn it into some sort of moral parable. Okay, it, it resists the veggie tales approach, right? There's nobody in this story that comes out looking good, right? We, we have no hero of the faith that we can emulate, right? I mean, imagine teaching this story in Sunday school to kids. What are you going to say? Okay, kids, let's all be like King Jeroboam. No, that doesn't work. Well, what about the, what about the old prophet who lies, No, I don't think that would be a good one either. And even the man of God, although he starts okay, he does finish pretty poorly. So (laughs) nobody really comes out looking, looking good in this story. There are no heroes of faith in this story. So what do we do with it? The second thing I want, to, I want to mention, observe, and it's also a, an encouragement, an exhortation to us, and that is uh, we need not allow ourselves to become distracted by curiosities and questions that this passage may raise in our minds, however, that the passage has no interest in answering. Uh, you know, there might be a lot of things in here that we might think, well, that's really odd. Why does that happen? Or why does he say this? Or what is going on here? Who is this person? And, you know, and we could easily get distracted and, 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 and miss what the author of this text is trying to tell us. And so we really need to be careful. We need to be really focused. I mean, focused like a laser on what is it that the author of this passage is trying to show us. And if we really pay attention, it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to go back and just highlight in a few places uh, what I think the theme of this passage is. All right? And if it starts to sound like a hammer, I think that's the point. All right? So... Let's go back just briefly. Verse 1. A man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord. Verse 2. The man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Verse 3. This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Verse 5. According to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Verse 9. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord. Verse 17, for, so, for it was said to me by the word of the Lord. Verse 18, an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord. Verse 20, as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came. Verse 21, thus says the Lord, 
because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you. Verse 26, it is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. The lion has killed him according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. Verse 32, for the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord shall surely come to pass. Do you, you notice anything? <laughs> Do you hear something repeated over and over and over again? Uh, I'd like to revise my previous statement about when I said that there are no heroes in this passage. There actually is a hero, it's just not a human hero, right? There is a hero, and the hero is the word of the Lord. Now, we need to be, be a little bit more specific. Um, what, do we, what do we mean when we say the word of the Lord? We're not just talking here about merely a, a blot of ink on a page, spelling a word. We're not talking about a mere vocalization in the throat. The word of the Lord here stands essentially for the power and the agency of the Lord himself who acts by means of his word. The word of the Lord in this passage takes on the, a life of its own. It's its own character. It's a living and active agent. Not because it's some third entity or something, because it is the Lord himself who by means of his word is present and active to accomplish his will. It is this because it is the word of the Lord. And so as we read through this story and we see the times, the, the manners in which the word of the Lord comes into contact with, and probably would be better to say comes into conflict with human rebellion, human falsehood, human failure, human disobedience, we see over and over again the ways in which the word of the Lord prevails and despite human opposition and attempts to thwart it, we see how the word of God always accomplishes what it sets out to do. Let's take a look. A little bit of a closer look here. The first, uh, the first instance, the first conflict we can say is that with King Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam here, we see, is in direct conflict with the word of God. Direct violation, rebellion against the word of God, not only because he has, in violation of that command, uh, set up places of worship, illicit places of worship in his territory, but also because when the man of God comes to confront him, Rather than listen and rather than repent, he stretches out his hand to the prophet and says, seize him. As oftentimes the, the prophets in the Old Testament did not fare too well. However, in this case, as a sign, as it says, as a sign of the fact that this is indeed God's word and that it is indeed against God's word that Jeroboam is rebelling, uh, the text tells us that his hand in that moment withered and he was not able to draw it back. And at the same time, that altar that he had built breaks. 
And so when Jeroboam then in this moment says, entreat the Lord, he asked the man of God, entreat now the favor of the Lord and pray for me. It's not that he's actually uh, experiencing some sort of contrition. Uh, He's upset about his hand, (laughs) right? That's what he says, entreat the the favor of the Lord and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. He's not saying that that I may, you know, uh, that this sin may be forgiven me or something. And so whatever we might make about, uh, of, of Jeroboam's an attempt to invite the man of God to come and to eat with him and to drink with him and so on, um, what we see here, this is Jer- Jeroboam is simply altering his, his method of, of opposing the word of God. Because at the very end, and this is confirmed, at the very end of the chapter, right? After everything else that happens, the, the, the author circles back around and says that after this, Jeroboam still did not turn from his evil way. And that as a result, uh, this, this sin ended up, it, it just, the house of Jeroboam was destroyed from the face of the earth. So let's think about this. We have King Jeroboam, okay? The mightiest man in that, in that place, and he has successfully waged a campaign against the, the heir of David. You know, I can imagine that Jeroboam might be thinking a little bit too highly of himself. You know, the, the house of David who carries the promise of God and he, Jeroboam, has successfully broken away from that and taken uh, the, the, the vast majority of the kingdom. And so Jeroboam in a moment, thinks that he has the the ability to oppose the word of God. And of course, what happens? (laughs) He he, he utterly and completely fails. The, the, The king of Jerusalem is literally reduced to a to a withering stump of what he was. And ultimately, as the text tells us, he and his house will be destroyed from the face of the earth. Because what happens if you set yourself up against the word of the Lord? You're going to fail. You can be the greatest, you can be the mightiest king of the earth. And it won't matter. Because the word of the Lord will be victorious in the end. That's a great encouragement to me. Look, about, look at this world and all of the things that are happening and the decisions that are made by presidents and governors and politicians and so on. It seems like everybody, whether, volunt- whether they're doing actively or not, but that they're setting themselves up against the word of the Lord and just say, yeah, but it doesn't matter because ultimately the word of the Lord is gonna win in the end. So the second person that we see then is this, this old prophet. And now, this old prophet, he, he hears what occurs, has occurred. His sons come and relate to him all that had happened and what the man of God had said. And uh, so he goes out to meet the man of God. And, and I do think here that this, uh, this old prophet is also opposing the word of the Lord and trying to thwart it, but he's doing it in a different way. He, he's, he's heard about what has happened. He knows that that, that direct frontal assault is not going to work. So instead, he uses deception. I also am a prophet as you are, and the word of the Lord has come to me, saying. Now, this is a much more subtle approach, but for that reason, it's also in some ways much more effective than the approach that Jeroboam used. Because deception is that which 
causes us to think that we're doing the right thing when we're actually doing the wrong thing. I remember Tim Keller saying, this is a phrase that stuck with me, is that deception or self-deception isn't necessarily the worst thing that we do, but it's the reason that we do the worst things. Right? Because it's what allows us, when we're deceived, we're able to rationalize, we're able to justify whatever it is that we're doing. You see, this, the man of God, when he actually ends up uh, disobeying the command that he'd been given, um, it doesn't appear as though he's, he's uh, willfully disobeying the command. He's, he's been deceived. He thinks he's doing the right thing. Oh, well, the Lord has spoken to you too. Oh, okay. And that's the difficulty is that if you're being deceived, you don't know that you're being deceived. And so if you say, well, I'm not being deceived, don't you see the problem? That's exactly what someone who's being deceived would say. <laughs> so how do you know? That's, that's why deception is so effective. And I don't know about you, but like, if I see, like, a, a TV show or something and there's a secret agent working, you know, a mole or something, and, like, you as the viewer know it, but nobody else does, I mean, that just infuriates me. It's like, when are they going to find out that this, is not, this guy's working for the, for, the, for the other side? It just drives me crazy. I see this, it's like, no, no. And we don't know why God allows this to go on for for the time that it does. But the thing is, is that in verse 20, there's a certain moment, they're at the table. And it says, the word of the Lord came to this, this old lying prophet. Now again, we may have questions, how does this happen? Is it a voice, is it a vision? We don't know, and quite frankly, it really doesn't matter. Because the point, what is the point? The point is this, is that when God decides that the deception, that the lie, that its time is done. From those same lips from which came the lie, God is able to bring forth the truth. That lying old prophet, when the word of the Lord finally actually does come to him, he speaks and what he speaks is the truth. Because, because the lie, falsehood, can no more stand, has no more power to stand against the truth of the word of God than does darkness in a room in which, when you turn all the lights on. As soon as you turn the lights on, the darkness is gone. It has no chance. So also the lie, so also falsehood, so also deception. When God decides it's time, his truth will shine forth and the darkness will not overcome. This is really encouraging to me too. We don't know why God allows times of deception. But we know that when it's time and when he decides, his truth will prevail. So that's the second, that's the lying prophet. Now, let's think about the man of God a moment here. And in one sense, it's such a disappointment. I mean, he starts so well, right? And he has this, this, this stunning moment, you know, which could have potentially gone along, you know, alongside of like, you know, Elijah and the prophets of Baal and so on. I mean, he's standing here before King Jeroboam. Um, it's a very dramatic moment. And, 
you know, and then, and then of course, after what happens, and then Jeroboam tries to get him to come home and eat, and he says, no, no, I can't do that. And so, so you know, this is just a, a, a stunning victory. Um, he's just, you know, face down the king, and then he falls, meeting this little old prophet who tells him a lie. I mean, man, that's really disappointing. <laughs> and, then, and then, of course, he, he, I mean, it's a spectacular end, spectacularly tragic, but nevertheless, where he's, he's then killed, torn apart by a lion on his way home and thrown in the road. A complete and utter failure. I, I certainly don't want to go out that way. So in one sense, it's a disappointment, but on the other hand, on the other hand, I'm kind of glad in a way. It's it's very encouraging for me uh, the fact that he actually does end up failing. Because what happens, not only the fact that the the old prophet near the end, we're going to talk about this in a minute, um, says in verse 32 that the, uh, he says, surely what what, uh, this man has said, the word of the Lord shall come to pass. But, in 2 Kings chapter 23, you don't necessarily have to turn that. You can if you want, but you don't have to. There's the, the conclusion of this story because what's interesting is that in, in, first, in first Kings 13, we see something of a conclusion of the story and then what follows is, of course, you know, the history of the kings from that point on. But this story uh, picks back up in 2 Kings chapter 23, when we're about 400 years later. And here we have King Josiah, the, the very king that the man of God from Judah had, had prophesied. And we see then in, uh, sorry, I'm sorry, 2 Kings 23, um, in verse, uh, verse 15, it says this, that moreover the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with a high place he pulled down, that is Josiah, pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount, and he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it. Listen to this. According to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. The man of God who ended in, as a complete abysmal failure, dead by the side of the road, the things that he had proclaimed, that he had predicted, came to pass. The word of the Lord does not stand or fall because those sent to proclaim it or to preach it stand or fall. This man is an utter failure at the end, and yet the word that he has proclaimed still comes true. Now, this is really important in, in an age in which, you know, uh, deconstructing faith is really, really in vogue. And not just, not just, you know, sort of your everyday in the pew kinds of uh, churchgoers, but even very prominent evangelical leaders that come out then on public platforms, social media, and so on, and talk about how they're, you know, turning away and they don't believe, you know, in the Bible and they don't believe in this and that anymore. And, or, or, you know, we see uh, the moral failures, right, of, of Christian leaders. And what happens when that, when that occurs is that oftentimes the, 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 the faith of people gets shaken. 
you know, and I would have to say just anecdotally, but um, that if this isn't the number one reason, it's got to be at least in the top three of reasons why people in, in Italy say to me that they don't believe is because of the failures on the part of church leaders, right? I mean, this has got to be at least in, in the top three reasons. And in a sense, I understand why. But in reality, the word of God does not fail because those sent to proclaim it fall. The word of the Lord stands on its own merits. It does not depend. See, you know, God forbid that Adam Love or Fred Holcomb or, anybody, or myself or anyone else here that, that you would respect, that you would look at perhaps as being, you know, a model, a, a, a teacher, would ever fail. But even if that should happen, that should by no means cause anyone's faith to falter in the word of God. And if it does, all it would show is that you've put your faith in the wrong place. That instead of putting it in the word of God alone, you put it actually in a person who doesn't deserve to have it to begin with. So in one sense, I'm so thankful that this man of God at the end, he fails because it so clearly shows that the word of God, its power, its efficacy does not depend on the skill, the quality, the standing, the ability, the the successes of those sent to proclaim it. But we need to go even a step further because, you know, I've said up till now, I've said, you know, the, the, the word of God it, it prevails in spite of Jeroboam's opposition and in spite of the old prophet's deception and in spite of the man of God's failure. But there's a sense in which this text, if we really are careful to read what it's saying, we have to actually say that the word of God prevails because of the man of God's failure. Because I want, I want you to see something. Verse 26, when the, when the prophet, this is the lying prophet, who had brought him back from the way, heard of it, in other words, heard what had happened about him being killed by the lion, he said, is it the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord? Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. See, the, 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 the old prophet knew that this was not some random encounter. This was not some lion out just looking for his lunch. Right? This was a lion sent on a mission. This was a lion sent to fulfill the word of the Lord. And so as the old prophet sees what, ha- what has happened, hears what has happened, he realizes that the word that the Lord has spoken is true. And that's why later then when we see, he says the saying that, that this man, he called out, verse 32, that, that the, he called out regarding this altar at Bethel. He says, it will surely come to pass. This old prophet goes from being a deceiver to being a believer. How does that happen? It happens precisely on account of the man of God's failure. Do you see that? Do you see how that happens? It's it's because the man of God fails, it's because he ends up killed by a lion that the old prophet says, oh my goodness, look at that. It's it's true. (laughs) It's actually the man of God's miserable end 
and death that causes this old lying prophet to see that, that the truth of, and the efficacy of God's word. And so he actually comes to believe and put faith in the word of God. Surely this word will come to pass. Now, I don't know about you, but that's just, that's astounding to me. That it's not only in spite of the man of God's failures, it's actually because of his failure that the word of God still accomplishes what it sets out to do. That's amazing. And to me, it fills me with so, and this is why I love this story so much. Because I, I tend to be so self-critical and, you know, after I, after I preach or after I teach or even in a conversation, if I'm sharing with somebody or, or witnessing or something, you know, I tend to go back over those and I pick them apart and I analyze them and I'm like, oh, man, I should have said that. Oh, that was, real. Oh, that was a real, you know, dumb thing to say. And I stumbled at that point and I should have said this or, he's, oh, you know. And then, and then I think about this man of God and I think him lying dead beside the side of the road and how... His death actually becomes the very reason for why, for the conversion of the old lying prophet. I say, oh my goodness, God, you're, you, it's like God's telling me, just get over yourself, will you? You take yourself way too seriously. You really, see, you know, we, we talk, we can talk, we talk lots about grace, 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 grace. And I, you know, I love to talk about grace just as much as the next guy. But, you know, really, if I'm honest, way down deep, I'm hardwired to think that it really does in the end depend on me. I really think that. I mean, if I have to be just brutally honest, I think that everyone's sanctification depends on my ability to teach the word of God. I really do believe that that person's salvation depends on my ability to clearly and compellingly articulate the gospel to them. And that if I you know, happen to mess up, if I happen not to be able to answer some question or objection, then somehow it's gonna be my fault. You know what, and this, is, this lying prophet dead by the side of the road, just get over yourself, will you? <laughs> you, can com- you could completely blow it. I mean, like, in spectacular fashion. And the word of God is still going to do what it's going to do. In fact, it's probably going to actually accomplish it because and, and by means of your failure. Now, don't hear me wrong, okay? Because as Paul would write in, you know, Romans, he knows some, there's going to be someone out there who's going to be like, well, okay, well then, you know, so if, if grace abounds where sin abounds, then let's sin so that grace can abound even. No, come on. By no means. This is not license to just, you know, okay, well then, who cares? We can just do whatever we want and so on. I mean, if you, if you say, it, you haven't heard me correctly, but listen, that's a different sermon. Okay, that's a different sermon. We can save that for a time when we're talking about Romans 6. Um, we're in 1 first, first Kings 13. And in 1 Kings 13, the point, what, what is driven home here is that, is that it is not only in spite of, but it is actually because of of our failures that, that the word of God still works and actually accomplishes what it sets out to do. And that is so encouraging to me. And it's humbling. And, and it's devastating to my pride. <laughs> but I need it. So I think about that man of God lying dead beside the side of the road and I think, yeah, that's it. That's it. Lord, it is all of you. It is, it is your word and your word alone, really, truly, that accomplishes. Not only in spite of, but because of. So, 
It's because Jeroboam is, is so obstinate that when the word of God prevails, we say, wow, look how powerful it is. It's precisely because the old prophet tries lying at first that when he starts speaking the truth that you're like, wow, look at how powerful the truth of God's word is. It's not only in spite of, it's because of. Against the, the darkness of human failure, the light of God's word shines ever more brilliantly. Um, you know, one of the things that um, I hear is, you know, people will say, well, you know, the Bible is just written by fallible human beings. And I say, okay, and? <laughs> yeah? <laughs> Your point? I mean, look at, look at this old, this, this, the man of God. He was pretty fallible, and yet the word of the Lord proved true. You say, well, some people say, well, you know, it's, ah, but that's your interpretation, and they have their interpretation, and everyone has their interpretation, so who's to say? Well, you know, there's this moment here where, where, you know, the man of God says, well, God told me this. And then the other prophet says, yeah, well, you know, God told me this. And so you've got your interpretation. I've got my interpretation. Who's to say? Well, God is to say. You know, to, to talk that way is almost like to treat the word of God as though it were the word of mere man. Because we could all get it wrong. As Paul says in Romans 3, let God be true and every man a liar. We could all get it wrong. <laughs> and God's word is still going to do what it wants to do. Now, this could be a really good place even kind of to wrap it up and stop. Um, and, and, and I would, except for the fact that there's one more detail here that compels me to um, make one final point. Um, and I'll get at it by, by asking a question, okay? Does it bother anybody the fact that the man of God is treated so severely in comparison to Jeroboam and, and the lying prophet? I mean, think about it. I mean, yeah, Jeroboam has the, the thing with his hand, okay, but that's healed, and yes, Jeroboam, it, it says eventually, you know, his house will be wiped out. But, you know, that's, that's in the future. He has still kind of this moment of, you know, things continue on. The old prophet, I mean, what happens to him? I mean, he, he seems to go along on his merry way. Doesn't, no, no catastrophic event befalls him. And, and in the scheme of things, I want to say that, you know, I mean, sure, sin is sin, but, you know, in the scheme of things, the man of God really doesn't seem to be quite as culpable. I mean, if you put, put the two together, right, compare the two, I mean, really, who seems would probably share more of the culpability here? The, the, the man of God who's, you know, does what he does because he's deceived into doing it, or the old prophet who, who knows exactly what he's doing? And yet it's the man of God, who ends up dead beside the side of the road, torn up by a lion. Does that bother anybody? Or does that seem strange? Think about it. The man of God, this man of God who comes out of Judah, bringing a message of judgment. And then he, the judgment bearer, is the first one to bear in, his own, in, him, in himself, in his own body. He bears himself the judgment before any of the others do. It's interesting. And then, what's the deal with the, 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 the bones 
right? Because the old prophet then says, um, he tells his sons, when I die, bury me, put my bones next to his bones. What's, what's up with that? Is that, is that? That's kind of an odd detail, isn't it? Well, do we, do we notice that the, uh, when the old prophet says this, it, 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 it's expressed as... Um, it's expressed as an evidence of faith, okay? Because he says, when I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried, lay my bones beside his bones. Verse 32, for, these all important connecting words, for the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord shall surely come to pass. In other words, he says, it's because I believe now that the word of God is going to come to pass, it's because that, for that reason that I'm telling you to put my bones next to his bones. So evidently, this, in some sense, is a, is a sign of, of faith. And why would that be? Well, if we jump back to 2 Kings 23, um, there's a, still another little piece to this story. Josiah is, is desecrating the tombs and taking the bones um, and, and using them to defile the altar at Bethel, and not only because it's, it's effective for defiling the altar, but also because it's a, it's a sign of judgment upon the bones of those who had been involved in this illicit worship. And, and then we read this, that um, in verse 17 of 2 Kings 23, Josiah says, what is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he, Josiah said, let him be, let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone, and get this, with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. So as Josiah is, is, is pulling out the bones from these tombs, using them to desecrate the, the, the altar, and he sees a certain monument. What is this monument? Oh, it's, to the, it's a monument to the man who actually prophesied that this would happen. And as Josiah then spares the bones of the man of God from judgment, guess whose bones are also spared? The defiling judgment. The, the lying prophets. You see... As the, the old prophet's bones are united together in burial with those of the man of God, the judgment bearer, he is spared the judgment. Now, does, is this starting to sound like anything to anybody? We have a man of God from Judah who comes proclaiming the word of God who then is himself the one who bears the judgment of God first so that those who actually deserve that judgment, if they look on faith, if they look upon his broken body and they look upon that and they believe and they cling to and they, and they are united in faith in death and burial with that man of God, with that judge man of God, they are, themselves are spared the judgment. Does that sound like anything to anybody? <laughs> See, this, this story, interestingly enough, if we really start to think about it, takes on the contours of the gospel. It's a shadowy form, but it is that form nonetheless. And I think what it's doing is it's prefiguring for us the time when another man of God would come from Judah, 
who would also come with the word of God, but interestingly enough, not simply bringing the word of God, not simply speaking the word of God, but as the word of God himself. The word of God with a big capital W. The word of God in fleshed, come out of Judah, preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and yet before any judgment would fall on anyone else, he himself goes and is nailed to a cross, bearing in himself and in his own body the judgment. The lion of Judah that turns upon him, and he bears that judgment so that those of us who are faithless like Jeroboam and false like the old prophet and even failed like the man of God so that those of us who will look at his broken body and say, surely the word of God has come to pass. We are united to him in his death and in his burial our bones together, as it were, with his bones, what that means is not only are our bones spared the judgment one day, but as Paul says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, if we have been crucified with him, then we also will be raised up with him in resurrection. So Jesus is the true word. Jesus is that word against which kings may do what they want. The nations of the earth may rage, the kings will plot together and conspire, and yet Jesus, the word of God, will reign. He making them his footstool. Jesus is the truth of the word of God, such that even from those mouths that now offer lies and deception, one day those same mouths will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So sure and powerful is the truth of the word of God, and so efficacious is that word that even if all of his servants were to fail, still Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, I told um, our church in Italy, um, you know, somebody had said about, you know, feeling like they were losing their pastor. I said, you are not losing your pastor. I'm leaving, your pastor's still here. Because <laughs> your pastor's Jesus. You know, and that's, that's not just a, a, a trite spiritualism. That's true. Your pastor is Jesus, right? And his truth will stand in the end. And so, the way that I tie this to this season, to Advent, it took 400 years from the time the man of God prophesied to when his, his prophecy came true in Josiah. It was almost a millennium from the time the man of God came from Judah until the time when Jesus came. But it doesn't matter how much time it takes. This period of Advent, this period of waiting, as we get to relive the, the process of waiting for the Messiah's birth, okay, should be training, as it were, as we are waiting for his return. So as we're learning about what it means to wait for the Messiah in his birth, and then we see that in the right moment, in the fullness of time, he was born and came, so also we know that in the fullness of time, he will return. And it may take a long time, but this story teaches us and it trains us to wait with hope, to wait expectantly. 
And that regardless of how long it takes, regardless of who's in power, regardless of what lies are being spoken, regardless of who fails and who apostatizes and who deconstructs and all that stuff, the word of the Lord stands forever because you know, flesh is grass, it fades, it withers, and the word of the Lord stands forever. Father in heaven, we just thank you that we have a sure and solid hope, a firm foundation in your word. We thank you that regardless of whatever else may occur, we can be certain of this. We can be more certain of the truth and the, and the, and the fulfillment of your promises. We can be more certain of that than, than perhaps even what we may have planned f- to eat for lunch. We can be more certain that one day our Savior will return, that all of your promises will be fulfilled, and that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look forward to that day. Lord, give us the hope and the strength to to continue to cling in faith to the man of God, slain for us, bearing judgment for us, and then faithfully witnessing and testifying that truth to this world that so desperately needs to hear. Confident in the power and efficacy of your word. All this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before we have a moment to close in song, you know, the thought that left my heart was is that maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling in doubt, suspicion. Boy, what a thought that has been placed upon your opportunity to choose. Will you believe in what God's word says? You know, there's a lot of movement in our churches for fads and trends and how we look and our styles. At the heart of it, it's the word of God. If we lose that, we've lost everything because it becomes then a social club. It becomes more about the personalities and the fame of the person standing in front of us. It really is about the hero of our faith and that is Christ and God. What is your trust resting in? And why are you here this morning? Is it to behold your God, to become confident in his word, or just feel good about yourself? May God speak as only his word can and challenge us to think about what his word has to say and are we trusting in that in all of its sufficiency? If you have no relationship with God, don't leave here today without hearing from his word of what it means to enter into a relationship with him. And if you do have a relationship with him, then how do you know you're living it according to truth if you're trying to follow something other than his word? We're gonna stand together here now at this moment. We're gonna sing a song in closing and preparing our hearts to enjoy some fellowship in just a minute. But may God speak through his word to us. Let's stand together.
as we get ready to leave a couple of things don't forget that there is a Christmas program next Sunday in here this is our choir and others will be participating looking forward to that as far as the program and everything uh, that'll be in place of our normal morning service uh, same time and then there still will be the discipleship afterwards and uh, some other things there make sure that you look at the no uh, to notice the schedule there's some uh, these upcoming Sundays that uh, there will not be any Sunday evening activities but uh, there are some things that uh, are still taking place uh, in a normal sense here. Uh, as well, I uh, want to mention that uh, the Christmas banquet is coming up on the 8th. Uh, there's still just a few places left. Uh, many of you have started signing up. There is child care that is provided, but we need to know if you need to use that. And uh, so if that's something that you're interested in, uh, you can check out uh, that information online. There's help in the foyer uh, if you'd like to do that as well. The discipleship hour is a little bit I'll use a good old word, discombobulated this morning, all right? Uh, but because the choir is going to be practicing in here, getting ready. Uh, for next Sunday. And so the classes that meet in normal places are a little bit disjointed in different places. The four-year class that normally meets, my class, uh, is not meeting today uh, because of needing to move some others into that. And uh, so make sure that you check the schedule. This will be up. There is a map that's in the four-year. If you're saying, okay, where is that room? All right. Uh, there is a map in the four-year to help you with that. So make sure that you stop by and look at that. So check that out. Uh, by the way, ladies, uh, Noella, Kleiss is going to be uh, sharing her testimony, giving a little bit of uh, a word uh, to you uh, in that discipleship hour class. So if you're looking for a place to go as ladies, especially, uh, that is an opportunity for you uh, this morning. Uh, make sure that you check out the bulletin. There's a lot of other information in there. And don't forget about uh, the farewell to the prairies uh, next Sunday as well. You are dismissed. Enjoy the time of fellowship, and we'll see you in the next hour together.